This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Don, uh, a lot of things I want to get to. Don Robertson, by the way, uh, as I said, the owner, operator, general manager, president, coach, fundraiser of the Dundas Real McCoys, now playing at an arena near you in the if you live in the Flamborough area at Harry Howell Arena every Friday night. If you live in Dundas, it's eight minutes. It's eight, eight, eight minute trip. It's not bad. And also uh, Calm Choice Realty and a variety of other things in Dundas here every Monday for the first hour to chat about all things sports. And the Queen. And the Queen occasionally, yes. And if we can tie the two together, if we could talk about fox hunting, is that a sport? Uh, it is in for some fox places. Cross. <laughs> in some places it would be. Now, see, there's a sport that probably has, uh, as much as, you know, whether or not Queen and King are legit now, I would think fox hunting would be seriously frowned upon by most people these days. Yeah, even having the horses jumping over the steeples is a little sketchy now. They don't mind polo, though. The horse has got to get the odd one whacked off the melon, don't they, with one of those See, I've always thought that. Balls and... You're, 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 I mean, the ones they're hitting. Not, well, yeah. And, and, well, both ways. Well, you know... There was a um, a uh, bullfighter uh, over in the old country today who, uh, speaking of that, I was going to mention him off the top, Don, but I, I passed on it because I just, it almost makes me flinch. He uh, did not have a good day in the bullfighting ring, and for many people, they're saying, good, I want the bull to win once in a while, but where the horn <laughs> made contact and pierced him was particularly horrible. He really lost. Oh. A couple. Oh. I mean, if the day ever comes that I become a bullfighter, that I decide to take that up for a living or as a hobby, and I need to be impaled by a bull's horn, put it right through my heart. Don't put it where he got it. Like, let me die quickly and painlessly as opposed to what he's going through, especially when he had to walk off. be interesting to see which way your lovely wife would be cheering. Mm. What, for the bull? Yeah. <laughs> Or for my heart the or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, poor guy. But um, I hope your day is better than him too. Anyway, let's get to this. Um, we had in the Canadian Football League yesterday a decision made by a coach at the end of the game, Jason Moss. The Edmonton Eskimos have a chance to at least tie and push the game into overtime and maybe go to the Grey Cup. Jason Moss makes a decision not to go for it on third and four. Long story, but universally, universally, from the mo- from the live announcers on TV, from the broadcasters saying it was inexplicable to everyone else, universally seen as one of the dumbest decisions in that anyone can remember in sports. A coach who just unintentionally but basically sabotaged his team with a stupid, unbelievable, indefensible choice. If you are a coach and you've been a coach and you've played for coaches, at the end of the game, if you realize that you just absolutely wet the bed with your decision that cost all the guys who are bleeding and getting bruised and beaten, if you made a decision that just ruined the season, do you come into the room and apologize and say, I messed up? Or do you stand by your decision and try and come up with an explanation and hope they buy it? You got to fess up. You gotta, I mean, you got to walk in and say, boy, I'd, I'd like to have that one back. I'd like to maybe make that decision over again. And you always play to win. No, listen, no one was arguing that Jason Moss didn't want to win. No, I, I, like, there's a few jokers on Twitter who are saying, yeah, he was 
a Manchurian candidate for Calgary. That's, you know, that's ridiculous. But he wanted to win. He just made a decision that was a boneheaded decision. But after the game, rather than doing what you're saying, he came in and tried to come up with some convoluted, ludicrous explanation that still made no sense. No, you got, you got to fess it up. You got to, when you screw up, and we, we, we do it. I mean, we, we make mistakes with the real McCoys, and I go up and say, you know, I'd like to have that one back. I mean, it happened three weeks ago, and what are you going to do? I mean, they all know. How are you going to sugarcoat a screw-up? Because then it comes down to respect. And you know you know when that really comes home to roost? When there's like eight free agents, and they're going, I'm not sure this is the place I want to play. If I screw up, he's going to be all up and down one side of me and down the other. Or he'll get rid of you. Yeah. But if he screws up, well, let's see it's excuse the, time. Let's see what the GM does. What happens if he does, though? What In the dressing room, in a game as crucial as this one, at a time as crucial as this one, because it's one thing to lose a regular season game. It's another to make a decision that basically costs you a chance to win a champion or get to a championship. What, what do the players say if you walk in there and say, you know what, guys, sorry, wrong time, wrong time, but boy, I messed that one up. What do the guys say? Well, I think it goes a lot further. Like, do you think they actually respect him for that at that point, or are they just more mad? I, I think the respect probably starts to um, ooze out after they're ready to claw his eyes out. I mean, they're going to be pissed. But the reality is, at least he fessed up. It's when you don't admit it and you try and skirt around it with some cockamamie excuse that nobody's buying. Which one do you want to be at the end of the day? I'd rather have him... Be mad but respect you. Right. That's all you got left. Because they're going to be mad. They're mad one way or the other. At least try and garner some kind of respect out of it and say, I was an idiot and I'm sorry. I look at this and I wonder, again, J- Jason Moss is, uh, has traditionally on the sidelines been a bit of a hothead. And he has at times lashed out at some of his players for mistakes. And I wonder next year if he's back, assuming he's back, if he can do that now, now maybe he shouldn't be doing it anyway. Maybe he'd be a more effective coach if he was just to take a breath. But, but if you've been the guy who made a decision that was a big mistake, and now when it comes time for a player to make a mistake, can he do that? Sure he can. He's in so deep now, why change? Really? I mean, I just, it I goes just, back to the respect thing. I mean, you're standing there and he's yelling at you. There's somebody out there. Some, somebody's got an attitude like me, <laughs> would look at him and say, remember last year in the playoffs? See, that's what I'm expecting may happen from someone. And they may get cut, or they may get the stink eye, but if you've got someone who's a... What's Moss going to do when he says that? How do you cut him for that? You need to be someone on the team, certainly, that has the stature that you can get away with doing that. Look, I, I, I agree with you, I just I couldn't believe that he then went into a defense mode for a position that I've tried like 15... Is indefensible. I've tried to figure out what he's saying and I tried to give him the benefit of the doubt because I really thought after the game, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, wait a second, I, I don't understand what he's doing at all. Mathematically, as a football coach, this makes no sense. So I thought he'd go into the dressing room after, he'd go to the press conference and there would be some brilliant thought that I had missed... But as a head football coach, that he had this 
brilliant strategy devised. Which is why he's head coach. Sure. That I just didn't see at that moment, and I would go, all right, all right, I got it. Yeah, I, I had not considered that, but fair enough. And yet his explanation was as nonsensical as I thought it was before it came out of his mouth. And I'm sure all the players were listening to that as well. I'm sure all the players were listening to that as well. I, my inclination would be the same as yours. If you're a coach and you make a colossal screw up, and hopefully you haven't made too many of them, so you have at least a little cat, you know, bank of goodwill in the or deposit of goodwill in the bank that you can withdraw. But better to just say, you know what, I had a thought, but in retrospect, man, was it a bad thought? I would guarantee you that a lot of the linemen, defensive, offensive linemen after they'd had about their 14th beer and 225th wing to replenish themselves <laughs> after the game, that's the comment you want. Because that's they're, now they're going to say what they think. They're going to be in small groups, and assuredly some of them would have said, why didn't he just fess up? Yeah, like, I, made a, I made a bad decision. How do, you, how do you get around this? These guys have been around football their whole life, since kids, right? Playing at least high school, probably lots of minor football and everything else. You can't fool those people. There's two people. Can't fool the fans either. No, there's two people on a football team that if they screw up, in my mind, they better admit it. And that's the kicker and the coach. Because everyone else is out there shedding their blood and literally ruining their bodies for the sport. The kicker goes out there, if he misses... Don't blame the holder. Don't blame the snapper. Say, I whiffed. And the coach is not getting beat up. He's asking guys to sacrifice their bodies for him. Those are the two guys that better say, I screwed up if they screw up. No, there, there can't be excuses. And most most kickers do. Most kickers do. Most kickers, Remember the time a number of years ago when, um, oh, what was his name, from Oakville, kicking for the uh, the Colt, Indianapolis Colts, and he got into it with Peyton Manning. And Peyton Manning. Mike Vanderjet. Mike Vanderjat and Peyton Manning referred to him as the idiot kicker and told him just to shut up. The times that your kicker speaks his mind, you're going to get yourself in trouble because all those other players who are playing with broken bones and fingers that are bending in the wrong direction and blood coming out of this and that and bodies that are just getting pounded, you can't walk out there and try and kick a ball and miss and then say, oh, Idiot snapper didn't put it in the right spot. No, you just say, listen, that was me. Yep. That was me. And if you're the coach, hey, that was me. Yeah, Bad I, choice. Yeah, kickers seem to kind of come out of the game if they're playing football more unscathed than the fourth, four-string quarterback. Uh, pretty much, unless they have to make a tackle on special teams because they miss a field goal and a guy's running back, and then they generally hurt themselves. I was going to say, have you ever <laughs> seen them try and do that? Yeah, there's almost always an injury that They'll results. get a concussion because they landed on the guy's heel. <laughs> or on their own head. Yeah, I, um, I'm looking at this one, and I'm just thinking Jason Moss is, uh, it, he may, in fact, I'm almost sure that he will wish by next year that he had just stood up and taken the lumps today. Because here's the other thing. In that scenario, in the last two minutes before going to a Grey Cup, people don't just forget that one. If it's game three of the regular season, 
it can get washed away by the rest of the season. Stuff can happen. Middle of August. Middle of August. You know, we forget. Other stuff happens. This is the last two minutes of the last game of the year that cost your team a championship, potentially. I don't think people are going to forget this one, and I think Moss is going to... You watch next year. Every stadium he goes to, there's going to be signs and people razzing him for stuff and on Twitter uh, social media is going to be all over him about his math skills and on and on and on this is not one that you just easily get rid of and including in the dressing room the only thing we don't know um, and perhaps the media have sourced it out or the players if the players haven't come to his defense it didn't happen he may have walked in and talked to the team and said sorry yep and then got but why if you're going to do that to your team it's, it would, would that not cost you even more respect if you apologize to your team and then you go to the mic and you tell all the public that I did what I did and I intended to? Now the players are thinking, okay, he either lied to us or he's well, lying I, to them, but he's lying to someone. I actually meant after he did the interview, but I don't know what the time But even if he was. does that then, he's telling yeah. one thing to one people and one to another. Who do you believe? Yeah. So, I don't know. Better just to be that guy who, to me anyway, and you're the coach, but to me it's... Why to fest up? If you if you screw it up, you screw it up. We've all screwed stuff up. Heaven knows. I know it's the worst possible time to screw something up, and he's probably not happy about it. I do it early in the day, generally picking my socks. <laughs> and then you try to go clean the rest of the day, well, so everyone's forgotten your mistakes by the end. Hoping tomorrow they match bedtime. because the day they didn't. Is that right? I'll I'll have to check afterwards. <laughs> Black and blue. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML. Don, on the weekend, a lot of interesting games were played. CFL, of course, the uh, the semifinals. Also, we know the Vanier Cup is being played in Hamilton at Tim Hortons Field next Saturday. One of the games that was played, one of the national semifinals, ended up being Western 81, Acadia 3. Now, and it could have been, by the way, vastly worse than that because... Greg Marshall, former Ticat and McMaster head coach now at Western, took out almost all of his starters at halftime. He was playing guys who I think were getting dressed out of the stands by the end of the game. That game easily, I'm not exaggerating one bit, easily could have been 120 by the end of the game if he had wanted to keep rolling it up. They could have put up 120 points on Acadia. So the question is, if you have a, a situation where we know that the Atlantic football programs are not competitive right now. They haven't been for over a decade. What do you do if you have a league where you know going in every year or every week or whatever the situation is, there is a team or teams that cannot compete, that cannot compete, and not just they're going to lose. They're going to get killed. What do you do if you're the organizer of a league where you know there's a team that has no chance and is going to be embarrassed? There's a different, I'm not sure I understand the question, which isn't surprising. There's a difference between having a weak sister in a league and having to play another conference to get to the national Either championship. one, either one. Because what do you do if you have a weak sister in your league? You've had a league where in the se- in senior hockey, there have been, been to, times where you've had a weak sister. We've been to weak sister. And what do you, what should be done? If it's not that, I'm not talking about a one year thing because every team is going to have an off year. What if there's a team that was in the Senior Hockey League and for five straight years they lost to everybody 10 nothing? What would you do? You have two options. If you have enough teams, you hope they go away. <laughs> 
Well, you do. That's because, true. But because they don't bring any people. Nobody will come and watch the games. We did that years and years and years ago. There was a couple soft teams. Simcoe was playing in the league and shouldn't have been playing in the league, and they were getting hammered all the time. And finally, they, 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 uh, the players had enough respect for themselves that they didn't operate the franchise anymore. But in today's day and age, we run the uh, you run things far more professionally, and you really strive for balance. Even our league today, we had a board of governors meeting, and balance is important. Every in a perfect league, everybody wins all their home games, and when obviously what happens is all their road games. So you want that, uh, but you don't want disparity so that the top team is is uh, twenty six points ahead of the bottom team in a twenty four game schedule. And if if you do have some conscious, which our league seems to, you. Uh, you know, you make sure that if you've got extra good players and they're not happy with not playing, you direct them to the other team, um, hopefully to make them competitive and, and lo and behold, not to make them too good too good to beat you. But you need balance for the fans' sake, for the participants' sake. When you play outside in another conference, I don't know what you do about that. Well, if, that, and so you have the to Atlantic get, Conference is as bad as you suggest it is. Which it is. And there is a... Col- Relatively. And if there's a college level, which assumably would be a step down from university level, then you relegate them down. Yeah, but they'll, they won't do that because then you can't recruit guys, and then so so you've basically well, we can't recruit anybody anyway. It's any good by the sound. Well, of you, you've essentially killed the program. I just look at this and I think, I mean, you to get to the Allen Cup, you usually have to go through if you were to win or whoever wins has to go through the Northern Ontario team, which often is meh, crap. Often they've they've won once or twice, but often it's not very good. And, and you look at that and you go, what's the point? And I'm looking at this situation. I'm thinking it's not that Atlantic should not be allowed to have a university football program. They should. And in the past 10, 12, 14 years ago, they've had good teams with St. Mary's. They've had teams that have won. It's just, what do you do now when you know that sending a team out there means just throttling them? There's not even a chance that the the Atlantic team was going to win that game. Well, the one of the problems is is, is if you do that and, and you want to get rid of them, you're right, if you, get, if you abolish them, they're finished. Right. So what the Atlantic teams have to do, like they do in hockey, um, University of PEI, when you can't give guys scholarships, I, I've had guys play for me that, that got jobs as janitors. They never did. So the alumni would pay for their books. They would get fake jobs. So they were, in essence, getting paid to go out there. And if you're going to do that with a football team, somebody's going to have to get creative. If the university doesn't want to get their butt kicked every year, you get a coach that's creative, a recruiter that's creative, and start offering, because the university is going to have to suck it up. You're going to have to talk guys into going out there, and you're going to have to give them scholarships. I just looked at what happened. And pray you don't get caught. I looked at what happened on the weekend. Yeah, and pray you don't get caught. I looked at what happened on the weekend, though, and right now, the way things are set up, U-Sports which is C, what you, we used to be known as CIS, which used to be CIAU, which, you know, it's, it's, oh, but the Canadian, a, yeah. oh, Canadian University Sports, they have three football games a year that are nationally telecast. They have the Vanier Cup and the two semifinals, the UTEC Bowl and the Mitchell Bowl. One of their three showcase events was an 81-3 to debacle that did two things. One, I'm sure it caused a lot of people to turn off and go find something else to do. But the second thing is, even if you thought that the exposure of being on TV would help Acadia recruit, 
who in their right mind who plays football and hasn't been concussed to the point of dementia is going to say, yeah, I think what I want to do next year is go to Acadia so I can maybe win the Atlantic Championship and then play someone else and lose 81-3 to while they're having mercy on us in the second half. That, to me, was not a recruiting aid. That was a recruiting deterrent. Well, from only, every, and they were the best in the Atlantic. The only guys that they're going to recruit now are guys that want to play in uh, the CIS, or what, what are they calling it this week? U-sports. U-sports. Are the guys that can't play here. That's all you're attracting. It's saying, if you want to play university football and you think you can make it to the CFL, why don't I go there because I know I'm going to get better. Maybe I can make it to the CFL because I'm going to be able to play on offense and defense there. Yeah, it's and, and that's uh, a well, bad analogy. Yeah, no, but play it, both ways. Yeah, I can't. I can't come up with anything else. I mean, who would want to go out there and play? I mean, how bad are the teams that didn't win? Well, that's that's a great point. I mean, they're I mean, they're not going to beat high school teams in Toronto by the sounds of it. I or would argue, I would argue that there probably were six teams in Ontario that would have handily beat the best team in Atlantic. Six teams in Ontario, Let's and. You know, and we're talking now like Waterloo that until this year had hardly won a game. Now, good for them for getting the program turned around a bit. They were four and four this year. Waterloo would have been a really interesting matchup for them. And anyone who's been following Canadian University sports at all knows if you're talking about at this point Waterloo winning a championship of any kind, you know, their day may be coming. They're heading in the right direction. But man, oh man, if you're saying, I wonder how they would do against Waterloo, it's a sad state of affairs right now, as far as a championship level situation goes. I just don't know what the what U Sports does because you're competing for eyeballs with NCAA. You're trying to convince people that it's worth watching. You're trying to convince people that your sport is worth spending some time to wa- to sit down and observe. And you put something, and it's not the it's not U Sports' fault per se, that the game that, as it turns out, is eighty-one to three, and it was just embarrassing. And I felt badly for the uh, the Acadia kids. How do you not feel badly for kids that are? They knew what they were going into. They knew what was going to happen before the, before the game started. Obviously, the offensive line for Western. Anyone who's seen the movie The Blind Side, that scene where Michael Orr gets mad and picks up the kid and carries him the length of the field and throws him over the fence. They could have, Western's line could have pretty much done that to Acadia's line on every play. It was just, it was men against boys and any team that had won from Ontario that went out there would have done it. And next year, the way it lines up, next year, the Atlantic team has to play the winner of Quebec. So they're going to get Montreal or Laval that wins the Vanier Cup every year. If it's only 81-3 to next year, it'll be a blessing. I mean, next year, honestly, if, they, if there's ever a coach that doesn't have a sense of good sportsmanship or is having a bad day and says, you know what, we got to work on some stuff, keep it rolling, they could hit triple digits. No kidding, they could hit triple digits. And, and I just, I don't know how that's good for Canadian university sports. Something has to change. I just don't know what it is. Did I tell you about my high school career? Share. Two and a half years starting quarterback at Highland. <clears throat> Ancaster beat us 38-1. to one. That's not that bad. Nope. Salt Fleet had beat Ancaster by 35 points, and then we had to go play Salt Fleet. So in two and a half years, and 
I found out later I was the quarterback because I was one of the fastest guys on the team. I also got to punt, and I asked the coach, why am I punting? There's two guys that can kick it further. And he said, because it's faster, because we'd only have two plays and out. Two and a half years, we never scored an offensive touchdown. Well, so I understand you got to play both ways because most of the guys just quit. The only thing we had going for us is that because it was in the fall, a bunch of guys on that played played on the hockey team, so we did it to get in shape. But you know, we knew we, what, what shape flat, flat boy. <laughs> and you and you think I wasn't concussed a hundred <laughs> times? Holy crap! But we went to play Orchard Park, and. I'm surprised we had enough guys to go. I don't even know why I went. I guess I'm not a quitter, but you just know we were going to get hammered. And it wasn't that bad. They only beat us by like 35. Now, it was be nice to your opponent day. The second half, they put in the girls' volleyball team to play against us, I think, though, if I recall correctly. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Don, a lot of chatter with Arizona in Toronto today, the Arizona Coyotes playing against the Maple Leafs, the really, really putrid Arizona Coyotes, although they are beating the Leafs one nothing right now at the end of the first period, which is uh, whatever. But a lot of chatter that, you know, the Coyotes have a couple decent players. In fact, they have a couple really good players that are right now being wasted because their team is, again, so bad. If you were Lula Morello, if you were on the Maple Leafs brass... Would you consider giving up, not Austin Matthews, obviously, but one of your top two or three young forwards to get a top young defenseman? Because those guys are the guys the Leafs have really built this whole thing around. Mitch Marner and um, Austin Matthews and... Uh, Cadre, yeah, Brown. All these guys. Would you, would, you make a, would you make a move, would you give away one of your best offensive young forwards for a good, maybe really good young defenseman? I don't think so. I think I would wait and bring in a veteran defenseman later if you could get him for draft picks. I think they really like their core. The only thing that would, uh, and they know their situation far better than I do, hopefully. Um, They know who they've got to sign, and they know who they may not have room for under the cap when all their contracts are coming up because they got a lot of skill there. And Nylander and all Marner and Nylander is the name that keeps getting thrown around there as the guy. And yeah, I'm, I don't. I, I, I've heard uh, rumor that Babcock isn't a big fan, but he keeps playing well. So how do you get rid of him? And sometimes you got to hold your nose and keep guys you're not that yep. happy with, but or like that much. Especially when he plays well on a different line, you can then free up a separate second line. Yeah. So I think the answer to that question is, as they say, the devil's in the details, knowing full well that in two years you can't keep this guy. But they're to the point now where they should start looking at having some success, you know, this year and next year and so on, because that window isn't open forever. And you get caught up in salary decisions like the Chicago Blackhawks did twice, getting rid of Bufflin because there's no room. And so Phoenix are a good place to trade guys. I'm just not sure if I'm running Phoenix. I forget the young fellow's name, but a Stony Creek that is. John Shakra. John Shakra. Um, if I'm giving up a good quality defenseman for a good forward, because if you give up the good quality defenseman, that means you got one more guy that can't give the forward the puck. And good defensemen are harder to find than forwards. So what are you doing? You're, I don't think you're gaining anything if you're Phoenix by making that move. So I would think Lamorello would be 
looking more at guys that maybe have a year and a half to go on a fairly big contract right now, like a veteran guy. Um, that when your guys form, come due, he's done. Right. So that you're, you know, if you don't keep them, you don't keep them, and if you do, you get them at a reduced rate. Who's the uh, boy? The, uh, the defenseman is killing all their penalties for him. They used to play for the Bulldogs. Played for Pittsburgh. Ron Hainsey. Ron Hainsey. Now, if you can steal another guy like that, and you see what he's done with the Leafs, he stabilized their defense, which is stunning to me because I remember I covered Ron Hainsey when he was here with the Hamilton Bulldogs, and. Good for Ron Hainsey for what he's turned himself into. Because you're absolutely right. He's playing great for the Leafs right now. He is a veteran, stable, level-headed. All the things. When Ron Hainsey was here, and I think he would be the first one to tell you, and a bunch of his teammates did tell me, (laughs) he was not a guy who took the game very seriously. His nickname here was Hollywood Hainsey. And there was a reason for that. And I just, if you had said to me back in 2003, 2004, that Ron Hainsey is A, still going to be in the NHL, and B, is going to be seen as a respected veteran leader on a really good team, I would have said, you are smoking something, Don. After, after coming off winning a Stanley Cup. Well, I might have thought that he ended up on a Stanley Cup winner, but being dragged along as a guy, not as a key piece. He's been a key piece. And, and again... Good for him. Some guys, the light bulb goes on at different times. I was going to say, you know how many guys with all that skill that get those raps that, you know, I'm going, you know, nowadays the guys, well, in his era, I'm going to the gym. Yeah, well, I'm going to the bar. And you go, this guy's going to screw up all this God-given talent because he doesn't care. And you're right. The light goes on, whether dad sits him down, his uncle or his best friend and says, you can make $2 million a year as a journeyman. Just straighten out for 10 years. Yeah. And, and I don't know if he didn't, t- I don't know if it was a case of didn't care. I-, I think honestly what happened was this is a guy who had a lot of talent, always had a lot of talent, never really had to apply that talent, was just always one of the best guys on the ice and figured it's just going to always be that way. But now if he can make a million dollars a year versus the other option, which is doing nothing, sitting at home. Golfing, yep. Golfing, Right then you don't do that. But back to your question about the trade. I think the Leafs are better off with the talent they've got right now trading a draft pick because at some point in times, like the Blue Jays did, you got to give up the stock of kids that you've built to be able to win now. And if they think they can win now, then they're going to look to bring in a veteran defenseman or a vet. Uh, look at what Marlowe's done. I mean, Marlowe looks like Marlowe. He's not at the tail end. Everybody's going to say that's the stupidest signing in the world three years from now when he's 62. But the reality is he's doing the job now, and he is as described. So I don't think I'd go after a young defenseman, and I don't think Arizona would make that trade. Oh, I think Arizona would make it if they got the package they wanted. Anyone's trade. Everybody's got their price. Wasn't that Ted DiBiase, the million-dollar man? Everybody's got his price. But I don't know if the Leafs want to pay that price right now. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I was reading, I was on Facebook today, and I don't go there all that often. But I was on there today, and I'm glad I was, because I stumbled upon an entry 
My old friend of ours, uh, a man you know well from his time as an MPP and as a counselor and as a mayoral candidate, and now as the principal of Maple Leaf Strategies, uh, a man by the name of Brad Clark, he posted on Facebook a very interesting, not a diatribe, it wasn't a diatribe, but it was a, it was a, 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 an essay of sorts about silly season, that this is political silly season. October 22, 2018, less than a year from now, in fact, 336 days from today, if you're going to keep track, is the municipal election. And that means silliness has begun. Let me quote you something that Brad wrote on his Facebook page today. I used, this is his words, I used the phrase silly season to describe the pre-election period that is filled with overzealous partisan patter, jovial self-justifications, and ultra-thin-skinned candidates. We will hear many hyperbolic Machiavellian statements designed to highlight an opponent's weakness while simultaneously underlining their own strengths. This euphemism is not meant to cast aspersions on all politicians, rather to highlight that in a build-up to an election, some statements and some actions are truly over the top. Brad Clark joins us now. Uh, Sir, interesting. (laughs) I got to be honest, um, as someone who sits on the sidelines and watches and observes, that sounds pretty darn awesome. Well, it is silly season, after all. <laughs> it is silly season. It's, it's, you know, it could also be described as entertaining season. I'm not yes. sure it's productive season. Uh, well, it, you, they have to be careful. I, I mean, and this is right across the province. Every, every council is like this. As a matter of fact, I had a number of councillors from other municipalities already repost um, the Facebook post. Uh, it's, they, they get so passionate, and I think a little bit, of rear view mirror vision that they really defend themselves. Um, what, sorry, what do you mean by rear view vision mirror or rear view mirror over vision? Their shoulder to see who's coming. <laughs> okay, okay, I see what you're saying. <laughs> so they 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 become rather defensive um, and and uh, really going out of their way to prove to the public that they are deserving of another term. And, and does it really happen this far out though? When you, I mean, we're a year. Oh, yes. Really? We're, we're into oh, yeah. that time frame now? Yeah, 12 months before an election, absolutely. And, th- and we're in double silly season now because we have the provincial election that, of course, is coming up in June. So uh, we're getting it from um, two houses, uh, our local municipal councils as well as our provincial legislative assembly. The, the, where is this coming? I mean, is this mostly, though, when you talk about silly season, uh, I get the people who are on council, maybe we should start with them first, because they're the ones who have a record, they're the ones, and I don't mean a police record, I mean a record of their voting and what they've argued for and fought for. So we we know if you're an incumbent, we know what you stand for in what you describe as silly season. How would a typical politician try to establish and remind everybody of what they've done? Uh, generally, they'll use social media. They'll use every opportunity that they have at a, in a council public meeting or a public meeting to highlight um, past records, past accomplishments, uh, election uh, promises that have been promised and kept, Scott. Those are all things that are quite commonplace. Um, but they also like skewering each other at the same time. 
Um, so partisan politics comes into play, and, and they like to jab each other and have a little bit of fun during silly season. Especially those, perhaps, who uh, may not be their best friends on council that they would not mind seeing voted out? Uh, but your words, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're, A, they're having fun, and probably um, they're not ideologically twins, let's put it that way. You're not going to be taking shots at council with someone that is always voting with you or that basically is, if this was a game of Survivor and you had an alliance, you're not voting your alliance out. That's a perfect analogy, Survivor, exactly. They're not going to extinguish the lamp and send them (laughs) off the island if they've been backing you up over the years. But, okay, so that's the people who are on... Oh, the other thing about people who are on council, the one thing I kind of expect in silly season, and maybe this happens all the time, but it seems to happen more, again, within the run-up to an election, is every single event, uh, every single issue, pardon me, that comes up at council, every single councillor, it seems, feels as though they must offer some comment on it. So even if it's councillor whomever who has nothing to do with this thing because it's four billion miles away from their ward, they must have an input on this. Yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, even if it repeats positions that have been <laughs> <laughs> made by other people or statements made by previous speakers, um, they feel so inclined that they have to have their their say. Well, you need that moment of airtime. I mean, Cable 14, you got to be on TV if you got to be remembered. Well, you know, let's be honest here. I mean, the councillors, uh, any, any elected official who has been in office for a while are aware that the, um, the, the, the recall of the constituents becomes much more um, noticeable the closer to an election. So when they're three years out they could say something and people won't even remember it at the election. But when you're 12 months out from an election, people start to think and pay attention. And so the councillors know this. So uh, naturally, anyone in that position would start to try to feather the nest a little bit. Is this only a politician thing? Because there are a lot of people who are out in the public right now. Now, we may not know who they are because I believe... It is May or is it July when you're allowed to actually put your name forward officially? So we don't know who's officially going to be on the ballot. But there are people who are already thinking about running in a particular ward. And I have to believe that if you are on social media, in time you're going to start seeing who some of the people are who are taking aim at some of the incumbents because they're the ones doing a lot of criticizing. Absolutely. Uh, It used to be January under the Municipal Elections Act. They moved it to May when you can register officially as a candidate. So that means that's when you can actually start to spend money on your campaign. Can you declare before then, though? Many have. I can think of a couple. And Ian D. Thomas, I think, uh, from the Winona area, has declared his intention to run. Um, These folks are are people who are passionate about ideas, uh, but more likely they're upset with a decision that was made by a counselor. And it can, it can be something as simple as they didn't agree to put in a stop sign, believe it or not, and they decide they're going to run against that counselor. So when this is going on outside of council, you were there. If you know that there is someone outside the council table who is going to run against you, and every councillor is going to have one. I don't think we're going to have any acclamations, at least I hope not. It's good for democracy if they have at least one competitor. 
are the counselors aware of these people? Are they starting to keep tabs and figure out who is going to be running against them already at this point? Uh, not just against themselves, but against their colleagues also. Um, so when they hear rumors, they share it with their colleagues. Uh, and it's all a part of the political paradigm that, that, that they exist in. Um, and, and when you're looking at who those people are that's running, if it's someone of note that is planning on running, and you're a little bit nervous about um, the election, you really do start looking over your shoulder. And that creates uh, the dynamics for silly season to be, be heightened. And for those colleagues of yours who love to have a little fun and who are secure in their position, they'll poke the bear a little bit too. <laughs> it, it, what is fair? Where's the line? Because we've seen in, well, especially in U.S. politics, but even in within our federal politics and within our provincial politics, it can get nasty. People are digging up dirt on other people. Where's the line in municipal politics that's acceptable behavior? Well, years ago, there was a clear delineation of what was civil and, and expected behavior. Uh, really, the line is decided by the electorate. So if the electorate choose to vote someone in who has been um, ultra-partisan and aggressive, um, lots of negative advertising, then that changes the line for the next election because other politicians are watching. But do you believe that in municipal politics in Hamilton that there will be, and not mentioning any names per se, whether they are incumbents or those who would be seeking the job, do you think there are efforts to actually do the stuff we say we hate so much, but then it always seems to work, which is digging up dirt? Do you think people are trying to dig up dirt on people in a municipal election? Without a doubt. That's not for, that's, that's not only the levels above this. No, no. I, I mean... Let's face it, when we're looking at in politics in Canada, and even in the United States for that matter, people who are running federally have volunteers who are working on their campaign, and many of those volunteers end up seeking office as a school trustee or as a city councillor. And so they're seeing um, the type of partisan politics that campaigns have become, and they're being told as volunteers, well, this works. So then they take that that information and then they try to gerrymander it to fit their local campaign. So uh, mud raking, it does happen. I can say, honestly, it doesn't happen as much as the United States, but you will see it. And when you see the debates, you will hear uh, different candidates be much more aggressive than they were, say, 20, 30 years ago. But I can't remember, and, and Brad, correct me, because you would recall better than I, but I can't remember a case where someone has brought forward something in a Hamilton municipal election of deeply, deeply personal, scandalous kind of behavior like we've seen so often in higher levels of campaign. Have we had one? Am I forgetting one where someone accuses someone of sexual misconduct or something else like that? Or is that, the, is that a line we haven't crossed? Any, any past councillors' names, um, and I, I stress past, it it has happened. There were allegations of sexual harassment and things like this uh, many decades ago. There were allegations of corruption, um, and and it can get very nasty. And when the local media picks up on it and starts to run with it, it gets even worse. Um, so it, I, I, the negative advertising most certainly does that. Uh, well, maybe not advertising. 
negative campaigning, it most certainly does happen, probably a little bit more than we would like. Yeah, it must have been a while ago because I don't... I would love to know, and and maybe I wouldn't love to know, but if, if a candidate came across something like that today, I'd be really interested to see if they would use it or if they if there would be a sense that it's just too much in municipal politics to drop that nuclear bomb on somebody. I again I just I haven't seen it. Maybe that's because it hasn't been out there or maybe it's been because someone has shown more restraint than we see down in the States. I'm not sure. And I think the restraint comes with uh, a level of maturity. Um, the younger candidates, the 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 uh, less experienced candidates, are frequently um, capable of grabbing something very negative and running with it, without really thinking of the impact that it may have on their own candidacy, let alone the opponent. Um, but the more mature, the, the the they tend to be a little bit more civil. They tend to uh, run on their ideas um, and not address. Um, their opponents. And we see much more of that from our incumbent uh, counselors here. They, they, they're quite confident that they've done a good job, and so they don't get into the nonsense, um, and they, they run, for the most part, very professional campaigns that talks about their record and the substance of that record without getting into the nonsense. But they will defend themselves when they're accused of of something that is uh, a scurrilous accusation. Now, let me throw one other thing out here that you touched on, and I don't think it's unfair, even though it uh, it requires a little um, self-evaluation, I suppose, because you also directed the spotlight on the media and says there is hyperbole on this side of the aisle as well. In what way are you talking? <laughs> well, not to lose any friends in the media, but um, I have found from experience that in the last few municipal elections, different members of the media begin to um, pontificate that we should toss all the bums out. So fire everyone on council, let's start an entirely new council. It's a very provocative statement, um, but it really doesn't help, uh, in, in my opinion, advance democracy uh, when it's just a flyby uh, attack on the entire council. I not what I have suggested is that we should really be talking about the individual councillors, um, the individual elected positions, and what have they done? What has their vision been? Have they been a city builder? Have they uh, they represented their local ward well? Have they been punctual? Have they been in attendance? And I gave a long list of of questions where if you're truly wanting to judge the performance of an elected member of council then you might want the answers to those questions. But Brad, you are asking for people to actually research their candidate, and I'm not sure people, many people anyway, really want to do that. If we only have 30% uh, turnout generally, and that's on a good day, I'm willing to bet you that there's a third of them that don't even bother to check who they're going to vote for before they go. You're asking an awful lot of people, are you not, to actually explore who you're going to vote for? But given the... Abundance desire to be pro, uh, uh, provocative and suggest that the entire council be fired. It's, I think, prudent for us to raise that very question, including with the pundits and the media as well as the public. Uh, imagine for a moment if the entire council was terminated. 
in, in an election. The chaos that would in, uh, ensue, the loss of institutional history, the lack of understanding of, of procedural rules, it, it, it would be incredibly challenging. But beyond that, does anyone in the media truly, truly believe that everyone on council, everyone on council has not performed well and should be fired? I don't think that's the case. As a matter of fact, I think it's a highly improbable. So then why be so provocative as to suggest that they should all be terminated? Uh, okay, we know that there is, at times, frustration in the public with counsel. We know that. You you were there. You've known that. Um, so as you've alluded to, some say get rid of the lot. Others say, look, I don't even bother voting because the incumbents win all the time anyway, so it's not really worth my while. I am now granting Brad Clark all-encompassing, all-utopian oversight power over municipal politics. You now have the ability to design a municipal political system that would fix all that, that would allow in elections for things to be done in a way that is the best possible. What would you do? What would you change? I mean, would it be term limits? Would it be something else? What would you do that would, in your mind, make things work even better? Or is there anything different? We don't have the best system in the world, but it is a democratic system. And um, the changes that I would would look at uh, is perhaps adding uh, a deputy mayor's position so that we have another voice on council that is citywide, Um, uh, perhaps having a few of the seats being more citywide so they would be running at large across the entire city, Um, and then the rest of the council would be, be ward representative. The biggest challenge that we have uh, in Hamilton is that there are some, and I stress some councillors who can't get out of their ward and understand truly what's going on in the entire city, Uh, whereas there are others who freely move from one hat to the other. I'm wearing my city hat now. This is all about city building and the vision for a city and making it better for everybody, and then they can put their other hat on. This is about my ward. I've got to get the stop sign fixed. Before I let you go, um, am I talking to, uh, since you don't have to declare now until May, am I talking to future mayoral candidate Brad Ward? No. <laughs> you, no. You did it last time. What, it, what did you learn last time that made you so quick with an answer? Uh, it was costly, money-wise. <laughs> <laughs> Not to I'm, mention I'm emotionally. So and... off my, you know, the emotions are always challenging in any election, but... Um, it it costs an awful lot to run for mayor in the city of Hamilton, the size of Hamilton, uh, and I'm still paying off uh, that debt. And so, to add more to that, no, I don't think so. Let me before I let you go. Let me ask you one thing though. Both, and that was sort of I didn't think you were going to, but in all honesty, if you do put yourself up for election, and especially if you're someone who has a little bit of name recognition in the city, and you certainly do. You, I mean, you, as I say, you've been MPP, you've been a councillor. If you put yourself up for election and when you don't win, how difficult psychologically is that to deal with? It's always challenging. Uh, for, for any candidate that has um, a lot of history and has demonstrated a, a certain skill set and has a great deal of, of accomplishments that one can point to, uh, to lose uh, an election uh, is is challenging. You learn to accept it and move on. It's probably more difficult for family and friends who truly believed in in 
the aspiration of that particular position. One of the one person told me at one time after they lost that they felt embarrassed because they had exposed themselves and put themselves up and and when they didn't win they 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 did they felt embarrassed was there any sense of embarrassment when you don't win? No, I I, I can honestly say I never felt embarrassed. Um I did a lot of soul searching after every loss trying to figure out exactly where we lost, what the challenges were. Um and there's never Rarely is there only one thing that causes one to lose an election. It's it's a number of mistakes um, and other candidates doing uh, better than you. We will now be watching, thanks to uh, to Brad reminding us, pointing out that uh, political silly season has begun. So when council is debating whether or not to draw a crosswalk at some obscure street corner, and everybody must give a seven-minute dissertation on the yes or the no. We will know why that particular part of council just took four and a half hours. Because every hell, it's a lot of fun too, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, look, I, I, um, I, I don't know that I want us to get into the uh, American sexual scandal on every turn kind of thing. But you know what? A little bit of a uh, little bit of parrying and a little bit of uh, give and take. You know, as as those of us watching, it's never a bad thing. It's high when, entertainment when they do it well and they 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 parry, as you call it, effectively but succinctly and comically. It's fantastic. <laughs> I I just hope that this election season we hear and see a lot of Terry Whitehead's loon call. <laughs> Well, I'm not going to try. <laughs> <laughs> Brad Clark, always appreciate the time. Thank you. No problem. Have a great night. Uh, go to Facebook, type in Brad Clark, look at his essay there about silly season. It's worth your time because we really are heading into this time frame when council and councillors and those off council who are trying to get on to council and with political, with the uh, provincial, pardon me, with the provincial election coming up, there's a lot of people who are going to be looking for a few moments in the spotlight, a little bit of feedback, a little bit of attention, a little name recognition. You know, sometimes that's great. Sometimes that's very, very helpful. Other times, when it gets a little bit ridiculous, you'll understand why. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.